This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1789, the Bastille was stormed, King Louis XVI was put under National Guard, and the calendar was turned back to zero. The French Revolution began its upheavals in the name of liberty, egalité and fraternité. On this side of the English Channel, there were those who thought bliss it was that dawn to be alive, but the statesman and philosopher Edmund Burke wasn't among them. He said, The age of chivalry is gone. That of sophisters, economists and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished for ever. Was it really the end of an age? What was the impact of this revolution on the culture of Europe? And did it really change political life in Britain forever? With me to discuss what kind of a watershed the French Revolution marked in the tide of history, especially in this country, is Stefan Collini, Professor of Intellectual History and English Literature at Cambridge University. He's currently working on a book, The Intellectuals in Britain and France. Anne Janowitz, Professor of Romantic Poetry at Queen Mary College London, who wrote Lyric and Labour in the Romantic Tradition. And the 19th century historian Andrew Roberts, who's currently working on a book on Napoleon and Wellington. Anne Janowitz, can you set the scene for us about British revolutionary culture, say, in around the 1780s, 10, 15 years before the French Revolution? What links were there, to start with, between the British and, and French, as it were, would-be revolutionaries? Well, I think it's very important to realise that there was a domestic radical movement in England that begins centuries before in the idea of Anglo-Saxon freedoms and the notion of a freeborn Englishman that, uh, that continues and develops in the 18th century and that becomes quite important around a series of radical campaigns in the second half of the 18th century, including the campaign for enfranchisement, um, the campaign for uh, dissenters' rights in uh, Parliament for civic entitlement. Uh, campaigns uh, developed from cranky uh, people coming from the countryside for land nationalization. The abolition well, you're talking about movement. Can you give us some idea of the time? We're talking about 1770s, 1780s. We're talking about the 1770s yeah. and 1780s. So when we think about. And land nationalization, something as radical as that. that yes, was, absolutely. Yes. So when we think about the impact of the French Revolution on English culture, we tend to have a thought of Wordsworth wandering around in the countryside musing on how heavenly it had been to be young in the period of the French Revolution. Um, but in fact, to really think about the impact of the French Revolution on English political, cultural, and literary activity, I think you really have to turn to the city, to, uh, to the social urban experience where the impact was really felt, it seems to me, as a catalyst for things that were already going on. So towards the end of the 18th century, let's say just for roughness, at the last third, at the end of uh, the period of the Enlightenment, there's a lot of, as it were, revolutionary thought around in 
England, particularly in the cities, especially in London, and that is corresponds with, in fact, there are corresponding societies with well, France. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the most extraordinary things about the again the impact of the idea of what was happening from the storming of the Bastille was that it brought together persons from all different walks of life and social backgrounds into groups, which is what happens in cities. People go to taverns, they talk to each other, they go to dinner parties, they talk to each other, and societies were formed, which were called the corresponding societies which were set up as um, really as radical pen pals between London and uh, Paris, where people wrote to each other. In fact, the genre of what was called the friendly letter uh, became a very political genre uh, in the period. So in the corresponding society in London, you had radical intellectuals, you had people like Spence the land reformer, you had dissenters all talking to one another, which I think was an extremely socially and culturally radical activity. Well, that gives us uh, some idea of the bedding in before the uh, revolution itself. Stephen Collini, weeks after the storming of the Bastille, the Whig leader, Charles James Fox, wrote to a friend, quote, how much the greatest event it is that ever happened in the world and how much the best. That's a very powerful uh, statement, obviously. Um, why, was, why did he welcome it in such exultant and radical terms? Well, I think there was a strong sense um, in Europe, uh, outside France as a whole, that this really was one of the most dramatic and significant breaks in history. After all, France was in some ways the most powerful state um, and strongest monarchy in the 18th century in Europe. And the idea that it might be challenged by this kind of popular movement, although in 1789, it's worth saying, it's not yet a very broadly popular movement. It's on the whole still quite um, an aristocratic movement and the uh, traditional elites uh, who gather in Paris for these meetings are not really in any sense uh, what we would recognise as uh, leaders of a democratic movement. But nonetheless, they are challenging the autocracy, they are challenging uh, the inherited privilege of the strongest state in the world. And I think it's worth saying that with somebody like Fox, he's drawing on a um, liberal British tradition which had prided itself on its constitutional monarchy. And so in some ways, uh, where Britain had been taken as the model for advanced political and constitutional arrangements in the 18th century, particularly by French admirers, actually, uh, there was now the sense that this was going to be taken further and that this was an optimistic uh, development, which, of course, as I'm sure we'll discuss, then comes to grief in certain ways. But if you take uh, Fox as the man who really welcomes it, and the man on the other side quite quickly afterwards, in response to the sermon by Price, Edmund Burke, with his reflections on the French Revolution, points out very sternly what he sees, and he prophesies correctly, uh, will be the uh, terrible things that will happen as a consequence mm. of this revolution and how harmful it is to Britain, to thought, and to Europe. Yes. Well, I think Burke, writing in 1790 and reflecting on the very first stages of the French Revolution, uh, does foresee, um, largely correctly, that what's being released here is in some ways a kind of uncontrollable force and a force for violence. Um, Burke argues that politics is inherently a matter of pragmatic small adjustments to changing circumstances and that the attempt to begin as it were from scratch and to by the light of pure reason build up your constitution uh, and to build up your 
social arrangements uh, and to scrap all the inherited and accumulated diverse forms of um, uh, social control and uh, forms of social association that had existed, that this is going to be fatal. This is going to remove the protections that um, individuals had found in what uh, Burke famously called the little platoons of family and neighbourhood and trade association and so on, and leave the individual exposed to the very chill wind of a central and authoritarian state. And so Burke, in part, sees this as the defect, really, of attempting to apply rational principles to politics at all. Andrew Roberts, Burke seems keen to persuade the British people that the French Revolution is nothing like the glorious revolution that happened in, uh, in, in Britain and England 100 years before. First of all, do you think he was right, and how persuasive were his arguments at the time? We'll talk about how long they lasted later, but how persuasive were they to the people he was addressing at that time? Well, I think that they were very persuasive because the Whig Revolution of 1688 was bloodless. And even on the first day of the French Revolution, the guards of the Bastille were massacred. And so you had a sense that this was going to be um, a bloody, violent uh, thing in France, whereas in 1688, the revolution that brought the Whigs to power, and of course Burke was originally a Whig, um, were very, very different. He did, however, um, correctly see that there were much closer parallels with the 1649 revolution. Um, the, obviously, at the time of writing the reflections, he didn't know that the uh, king would be decapitated, as, uh, as obviously Charles I had been. But uh, the parallels there were an awful lot closer, and he was able to, um, to spot those because he had the, um, the advantages of knowing what had happened in 1649. Do you think he was thought to... Do you think that he was his arguments were proved right at the, right? right well, that's a big word at the time, Andrew. But I, I'm being well, his, predictions, his predictions. His predictions. His predictions certainly were very quickly. But um, how? No, sorry, what I'm reading what else, How did his arguments? How how big a grip did they have on the British, particularly the English, the power, those who ran power at the time? Um, was and was that because of the arguments, or was that because of, if it was from our old enemy, France, and we were turning against them and that sort of thing? Well, I think the predictions um, are important to take into account because as they slowly unfurled and, and actually came one after the other to be seen to be true, so the argument was strengthened, the arguments that he was making um, that uh, we just heard earlier about uh, the nature of civil society, man as a fallen being, the politics of envy, if you like. These things were um, strengthened massively uh, as, as time went on, and he had a, a tremendous influence on conservative thought, on the Pittite reaction. I mean, Pitt, of course, had become Prime Minister five years before the revolution uh, took place, but he was just yet another um, politician of the day until the revolution. And then the backlash, the Tory backlash, as it were, um, really dominated uh, British politics until um, the fall of Liverpool in 1827. Can I just move to this with you, uh, uh, Janovich? Can I just move to the third person in this sort of uh, the receiving of the French Revolution? We had Fox, greatest event. Burke, watch out, this is going to lead to terror and the European. And then we have Thomas Paine. Um, uh, as you know, yeah. Burke lost the House of Commons debate on the French Revolution to Fox. And then Paine wrote that Burke, as he rose, as he rose like a rocket, he fell like the stick. Uh, how do why do you think that Paine won the argument and how did he win the argument then? Well, I do think that, that the notion that 
Burke was proved right, and somehow that means his impact was most important uh, when he said what he says is is not actually what happened culturally uh, in England at the period. You had Fox who became very close to uh, dissenting movement for reform and these more uh, cranky street-level radicals, who in fact, it's certainly up until uh, uh, 17, the end of 1792, did in fact imagine, as Wordsworth said, that we were forerunners in a glorious course, and that in fact what was happening in France was like the Glorious Revolution. And what was quite extraordinary, I think, about Paine's response to Burke was that Paine said, if you look at what happened in 1688, what you have to understand is that what it established was that it should be principles and not individual persons who who are the bearers of, of the state. He said it should be reason and not custom that determines how we govern and how we understand legislation. Um, and for that reason, it should be the present and not the past that determines how we understand how we want to um, make our lives politically and culturally. And this had an enormous resonance um, amongst persons who were not only interested in a democratic franchise, but who, having been um, shaped by and illuminated by the Enlightenment felt that these were all rational principles that, in fact, if it were in case, in fact the case that the Revolution of 1688 embodied these, then the French, what looked like it was going to be a constitutional monarchy, would be the spreading of that. I, I think it's important to note that when we talk about the, the impact of the French Revolution on English culture, that there's an enormous impact of English culture on the idea of the French Revolution. Fine. Can you briefly reply to that, Andrew? Then I want to take it forward. Just very briefly, yes. Um, I, I agree with, uh, with that, but the fact is that... Um, it held back things like franchise reform for 40 years. The um, reaction, the Pittite reaction, was able to um, to just wipe franchise reform <laughs> off the political agenda for four decades until the 1830s, which is um, and it was on the agenda on the on the on the radical side, and it did ideologize um, politics. But um, but it was a disaster in the short term. Can I go back to France now? So there's the revolution, there's the declaration of the rights of man and the citizen and so on. Uh, it's intended as an international document. What sort of international impact did it have? I, I think I'm going to confine it to this country because well, if we go around the rest of the world, at this stage we won't have time to do it properly. So what does the impact of that have coming from the message from France? We've had the reaction from this country. What about the message from France? Stefan? Well, I think it has... Um a tremendous long-term impact. I think what Anne Janowitz has said uh, just now is right about the short-term situation. And we have to remember, I think, that um, we talk about the French Revolution as, if, as though it were a single event, but, of course, it's a, a long series of events. And the response to 1789 itself and the Declaration of the Rights of Man is in all kinds of ways very positive uh, and is seen as... Um, uh, n not just the kind of new dawn that Wordsworth or in a different way Fox was hailing, but um, that it was actually uh, an example of the way the British model was being taken up in Europe. Of course, by 1793 or 1794, after we've had the terror and um, far more uh, extreme and interventionist proposals from the, the successive ruling groups in France, this looks to many of its early as it were, moderate supporters, to be turning into a nightmare. 
that it's really departed from what had seemed to be the um, positive uh, introduction of and guarantee of a range of civil liberties and to be introducing a kind of state terror uh, which, uh, in the end, had to be resisted. And that's very much, I think, the um, dominant, as it were, educated or ruling class reaction in Britain in the succeeding decades. And that becomes the, the divide, doesn't it? Andrew Roberts, the, uh, when Marie Antoinette was guillotined in 1793, on one side you could see it as the logical outcome and logical aim, in a way, of some of the revolutionaries. On the other side, a terrible mistake for the French... Can you give us your view on that? Oh, it, w- it was an absolutely astonishingly uh, awful mistake for the French to uh, to kill her. Um, it uh, it shocked reactionary opinion or indeed conservative opinion throughout Europe. It in- they'd already, of course, had an invasion uh, by the Prussians, um, the French. But nevertheless, this was obviously now going to be a a war to the to the bitter end. Um, and uh, because of executing because of the ex- Austrian connection. because because she was the daughter of the Emperor of mm. Austria. And um, well, whilst it was considered understandable if the French killed their own royal family, to kill Austria's um, as well was absolutely um, uh, madness and and uh, and evil and vicious. And this is what really made the um, the Napoleonic Wars so lo- long-term and vicious and inevitable. Yes. Um, sorry. Anne. Well, I just I just wanted to say that it, it seems to me that what's What's quite important to realize is that the guillotine of the king and queen meant in England that the idea of the glorious revolution as the antecedent was exposed, was exploded, let's say, Mm. and the English regicide is what appeared as the ghost from Mm. the past, which I think that was what precipitated the the reactionary um, uh, legislation that Pitt then put through. And it's quite interesting that, you know, nothing really happened in England. Uh, Nothing really happened in terms of uh, large-scale riots. But what happened was speech, seditious writings. The the legislation against seditious writing was about the fear of what talking about freedoms might mean. And if people recalled the regicide and the period when there had been a commonwealth in England, that was what seemed very dangerous to the state. Uh, in, in England. Can Napoleon, uh, Simon Collini, can Napoleon be seen as a continuation of the French Revolution and his impact as part of the French Revolution? Well, of course, this has been the long-running debate, really, about how far there is some kind of inherent logic to the um, initial French revolutionary principles, which leads to the um, what becomes eventually the Napoleonic autocracy. Uh, I think the first thing to say is that, of course, uh, the traditional British historiography about Napoleon had been that that's the enemy and um, that he's bent on conquering Europe and we in the name of British liberties and so on are resisting him. Of course, in most parts of Europe, it wasn't seen like that. Napoleon came as the liberator. Napoleon and the French armies were the bearers of revolutionary principles, often attracting support from the Um, indigenous radical movements in the various European countries and aimed at the overthrow of the monarchy or or the established order there. Uh, But I think what uh, very quickly comes to be argued is that the, the very way in which the later stages of the French Revolution had concentrated all power in the state and had uh, had, um, eliminated the intermediate bodies paved the way if that state fell into the hands of a figure like Napoleon, for an almost limitless tyranny. And much of the argument throughout the 19th century then precisely was, 
Was this the result of um, a series of contingent circumstances, the fact that the French did go to war, as we've already said, which changes the nature of their um, politics? Was it to do with the um, response of the uh, monarchies of Europe? Um, was it to do with the sheer chance of Napoleon's own ambitions and talents? Or was he, in, in, in this sense, the kind of uh, logical embodiment of the state power, centralised state power, which the uh, revolution unleashed? I would just quickly say, of course, the, uh, in a way, more subtle revisionist account of this that we get in the 19th century, especially from somebody like Tocqueville, is that the French state had always been a centralised autocracy, that actually Napoleon wasn't very different from, for example, Louis XIV and Louis XV in the 17th and 18th century, and that in that way, and in a way this is the, the uh, provocative uh, element in this revisionist account, in that way uh, what we're dealing with here is a continuity in French history and not the establishment and export of universal radical principles. But isn't it also the case that the, that the other idea of Napoleon it, that makes him different from the king is that he's just a guy? He's, he, he, he isn't born to privilege. It's, he brings himself up. And so, again, in, in relation to its impact over in England, there's a sense of Napoleon as somehow being the continuation, perhaps, of a democratic or a, uh, a revolutionary idea. But did his arrival after an ideological revolution bring to war and politics in Europe, let's concentrate on that for a start, mm. the idea of ideological conflict for the first time, the idea of war on a different scale, the levy en masse, instead of there being armies of 60 or 70,000, his armies were 600,000 strong, you know, everybody's in the army, the nations at war, the idea of na nations, I mean, did he actually uh, push the uh, push it on in a, in a way which would not have occurred, Stefan, I don't think, to, to the Louis? No, the, the Bourbons were never going to um, invade Russia. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a peculiarly um, Napoleonic concept uh, that, uh, that nationalism could be used um, for him. And, of course, later in Germany and Italy, uh, and particularly in Prussia, uh, it's used against him. In the War of Liberation of 1813, the Prussians think of themselves as... Um, as Germans, really, for the first time, and that they're going to wreak a terrible vengeance and on the France. And responsible for German nationalism. He is, absolutely. Militarism, Prussian militarism, he's, he's responsible, in a way, the French uh, Revolution is responsible for the two terrible things that have happened in the 20th century, communism and uh, German militarism. Stefan, are you <laughs> yes. lost for words or are you finding the right one? <laughs> uh, somewhere in between those two. Uh, I mean, I think uh, we, we have to stand back a little from just the immediate events of 1789 to 1815 because there we're concentrating on what Napoleon did and, and the effect that he had. But, uh, I mean, I think, taking a slightly longer perspective, uh, the idea that um, members of a modern state are citizens that this in some sense is a matter of their political equality, that... Um, talking about men here. Well, that, of course, is part of the argument thereafter. Yeah. That was, that was uh, argued during the French Revolution itself. I mean, there were a set of traditional uh, liberties in Britain guaranteed by the law for certain categories of people under certain headings. But what I think the French Revolution exported and in a way still symbolises is the recognition of the dignity of the citizen as such 
not simply by the chance of living under certain circumstances or having uh, acquired certain status in that society, but that members of that society, as you rightly say, for much of uh, this period, only the male members of that society, but the principle, of course, has then been exploited quite properly to be extended. Um, but the role, really, of a modern politics is in some way to give recognition to this dignity and to treat people as equal bearers of rights. I think that is why the revolution remains such a, an enormous point of reference for modern history. And, and in a way, it's a much more uh, optimistic account of it for all that happened in the 20 years immediately following 1789, a much more optimistic account of its significance than this rather pessimistic emphasis upon how it all turned to tyranny. Under Robert. Not just all turns tyranny, but um, also so quickly Napoleon, in, um, he infuriated uh, many of the romantics when he crowned himself emperor. He went back on the, um, on the religious agreements um, that, uh, that the um, revolution had spawned. He created an aristocracy. Um, he made his marshals princes and dukes, and in one case a king, and really um, rebuilt uh, so much of what the revolution was all about um, ripping down. So when you look at the, as you rightly say, uh, Stefan, um, the enormous political implications of the French Revolution, you really have to go back to 1789 and very little further than that um, because it's the principles of 89 that don't really last for more than about three or four years that are in the hearts of people, especially in America. We haven't touched America, mm. but that's crucial, <coughs> especially with Tom Paine. But well, can you touch on America and Tom Paine? Okay. Well, Tom Paine's Tom we Paine's um, Tom Paine's thought was probably because he more is England, America, and France, isn't he? Precisely. Yeah. Uh, goes to all of those countries and is, in terms of the long-term implications of Paine's thought, uh, it's really more important, I would argue, in America on the um, on the um, creators of uh, of the um, American democracy than um, than anywhere else. And Chakovitz, uh, do you think that the English distrust, British distrust now, of intellectuals, mainly English, stems from the fact that the intellectuals were so heavily implicated in the French Revolution? Uh, well, I think, it, I think what you're raising is the question of what the meaning of rationalism was, what the meaning of rationalism was within in English intellectual life in that period. Because it does seem to me that... Um, in fact, what Wordsworth argues when he describes his experience of the French Revolution retrospectively is that he mistakenly was a rationalist when, in fact, his heart was um, a, a sympathetic, uh, intuitive person. And so his history of the French Revolution becomes his discovery of how he had split himself has split himself in half and had behaved as a rationalist in accordance with the principles of the French Revolution, whereas really what he was at heart, in a sense, was like a Burkean, that is, interested in custom, interested in rootedness in the land, interested in native affection. And um, that has meant that, that the history of of cultural life, which sees in Wordsworth and his inheritors the... Um, the sense of 
how it is not the rational but the feeling that allows us to understand each other and relate to each other was actually codified, I think, in the prelude. It's why that poem becomes so important in English history. And yes, I, I certainly think that that rationality um, and our distrust, well, your guys' distrust of rationality, does come from a concerted sense that, uh, that, that reason is overtaking what we know intuitively, which is really the idea the uh, Burke's ideas of of knowing things um, sort of through the body and the land and I think uh, I, I think that's right. I think the British are, are right to be uh, distrustful of uh, intellectuals. Um, one thinks of the damage that Voltaire and Rousseau and Diderot and the uh, philosophers and the encyclopedists unleashed uh, uh, during that terrible period. Um, and uh, and thankfully we didn't have. I mean, the world would be a better place had the French Revolution not happened. And we did have a form of evolution, take political evolution, taking place in in uh, Britain at the time, which was uh, derailed and uh, sent down a cul-de-sac by the French Revolution. You know, you say that the world would be much better if uh, the French Revolution had never happened, but of course it might have meant that you were languishing in the Bastille at the moment, subject to arbitrary arrest. Um, surely we, we've got to um, recognise that whatever uh, actually, as it were, went wrong in the short term, um, the world was transformed in the direction of a kind of democracy and a kind of liberal principles, which I'd like to think... Even you don't think we should live without As Chuen Lai said, it's uh, too early to say. Right. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Stefan Collini. Thanks, Andrew Roberts. Thanks, Anne Jano Ritz. And we'll be talking about the sonnet next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.